the pro-Europeanism you see now is not a defense of the idea of Europe. It's a defense of the idea of taking the 200 billion euros that have been budgeted as part of the post-COVID recovery fund and spending them wisely on infrastructure and trusting Draghi to do that more than the horse traders who appear to be in charge in Italy now. Welcome back to another episode of In Common Decency. Luigi Barzini, the Italian social critic, wrote in his 1964 American bestseller about his home country that the Italian way of life cannot be considered a success except by temporary visitors. It solves no problems. It makes them worse. Chris Caldwell has been more than a temporary visitor over the years, so his noted essay on First Things magazine in the early days of COVID-19 titled Italy in Crisis, seemed to concur with Barzini in several ways. Now, to be fair, he may have had a few biases. Chris's 2009 bestseller, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam and the West, is the kind of thorough portrait of modern Europe that we seek to emulate at Uncommon Decency. A work of thorough Euro-realism. Alessandra Bocchi of the Wall Street Journal, for her part, has in many ways traveled inversely to Chris's worldly tours of Barzini-like social criticism. She's also a regular at First Things and several other illustrious reviews. And upon living and studying in Italy and the UK, she currently helps edit the journal's op-ed pages as Joe Raggle Memorial Fellow from New York. We are so blessed to have these two distinguished writers discuss the Italian malaise on our show in the wake of Mario Draghi's formation of a new Italian government. Is the Italian political imagination as fractious as we tend to think? Was Mario Salvini's clarion call to close Europe's borders a harbinger of a new sort of immigration politics across Europe? If so, what are other canneries in the Italian coal mine that may occur tie changes across the old world? Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us tremendously to reach a wider audience and keep this show growing. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. We are so blessed today to welcome uh, two uh, distinguished uh, journalists, writers, uh, that uh, not just on a professional level, but also on a, on a sort of personal level, we both very much look up to and we're incredibly grateful that they are making time for us at a very early time in the morning. They're both based on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, whereas we are uh, in, in the old world. So they've, they've, uh, they've had to, you know, they're, they're giving us they're availing themselves at a very early time for them, so we're very grateful. And uh, we're here to discuss Italy, which is um, a, a, you know, a country and a, and a topic that is very close to the hearts of both of them. I will begin introduce, introducing them briefly. briefly. Uh, Alessandra Bocchi is the, uh, is the Joe Raggle Memorial Fellow of the Wall Street Journal's opinion page. Uh, her writings uh, have featured in a number of publications through the years. She's worked as a journalist. Uh, for, for, for a long time, really. She's written for First Thing. She's written for The Spectator, National Review, The American Conservative, and a range of others. She's also extensively reported on a number of countries in, in Asia, uh, North Africa, and obviously her own uh, country, home, home country of Italy. Uh, and a recent piece that we'd uh, love to plug uh, by Alessandra uh, featured in, in, uh, in, in the journal last week 
And uh, if, I, if, I'm, uh, if I'm summing up your, your argument, Alessandra, correctly, you seem to argue that, you know, some of the recent insurrections that we've seen in the United States in, in the form of, you know, BLM riots and, and capital storming mobs, uh, those things really have nothing on the Gaterosi, right, and the, the years of lead. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. It was just a way to show that insurrection really has a different face and, um, even the term domestic terrorism, which has been thrown uh, around from various people, whether politicians or in the media, um, actually has a different meaning from mm. what happens uh, recently with the storming of Capitol Hill or the uh, summer riots. As disturbing as those acts were, they were not um, organized as part of an effort to overthrow the government. Mm. Or to affect any real change, and we're seeing that now, like nothing has really changed. Sure, sure, and uh, we really encourage folks to head over to the to the journal and read your 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 piece. And on the other side of the line, we have uh, Chris Caldwell, uh, who is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Uh, he's uh, suffice it to say, widely renowned on both sides of the Atlantic as a as uh, a most perceptive observer and a, a commentator on European matters. Uh, he's perhaps best known, or at least in Europe, best known for his 2009 book, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West. Uh, although his most recent work, which is equally um, self-recommending, is, is The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, which came out last year. And besides covering uh, the country for a range of publications as well through the years, Chris uh, actually visited Italy in the early days of the pandemic, and, and he published an, an, a really fascinating essay that we also encourage folks to, to read on first things called Italy in Crisis. So folks, I, I just want to give a brief introduction and very quickly head over to Alessandra first and then to Chris for your, again, your sort of generic assessment of, of where we are at the moment in, in Italian politics and Italian society and generally Italian life. We'll start with some context just to, to cue close to the news cycle. Uh, you know, uh, Italy is, you know, in the grip of what seems like a secular form of political stalemate, right? Uh, there's a data point that is routinely given in, in some of the mainstream media um, that says, since the end of World War II, Italy has had 66 governments at an average rate of almost one every year, right? Uh, Alessandro will, will maybe fact check me on this. Uh, but, you know, and, and perhaps because of the Italian establishment's inability to anchor its, its policies, its programs, and white popular support, and also because it is sought to, to alleviate that failure with, with technocracy at, at some uh, points, um, the country has also been a playground of, of populism of, of various sorts, right? There was an, an odd assortment of right and left-wing populism uh, that filled that vacuum, right, in the form of a coalition government um, of the uh, Lega Nord and the uh, uh, Cinque Stelle uh, movement, uh, but uh, then the Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini pulled out of that governing coalition in September 2019, uh, and, uh, and, and, and we uh, moved into what was then called uh, the Conte II government, the Giuseppe Conte II government of Partito Democratico, the sort of center-left, and the Cinque Stelle movement. Um, so the, again, the latest, uh, uh, the latest uh, item in, in the news cycle that I want to um, hew to is, is that uh, Matteo Renzi uh, now has pulled out of the Conte II government, uh, and uh, that triggered uh, the prime minister's resignation. And, and there's an ongoing round of contacts at the moment. Um, and some of the latest uh, reporting suggests that uh, former ECB president Mario Draghi has been called on to facilitate uh, these uh, contacts. So Alessandra first and then Chris. 
How do you even begin to diagnose, Alessandra, the, the fractiousness of Italy, the, the never-ending quest to find a stable government? The, the old sort of political families seem to be at all-time lows of support. Uh, their insurgent rivals seem equally unable to agree on, on a governing agenda. Uh, what's, in your view, the sort of the rock-bottom source of the political disillusion in, in Italian public opinion? Well, Italy is very fractured, but it's also very united in a way because it has a different political system um, in the sense that it's not a bipolar system like the one that you have in the United States or even the United Kingdom, where you really have two alternatives and two parties. Um, in Italy, you have many different parties. And what you see is that they all have different agendas, so it can create some confusion. But ultimately, they're also willing to um, form alliances with each other, even when their agendas completely contradict one another. So for example, you had, you know, uh, the League form a uh, coalition with the Five Star Movement first, and then the Five Star Movement very surprisingly formed a coalition with the Partito Democratico, which it was founded on opposing that establishment party. So it was really quite ironic. And now we're seeing possibly uh, the League form a coalition with the Partito Democratico. Mm. So Italy seems very confusing. <laughs> and it seems very fractured, but in reality, the parties are always willing to uh, put their differences aside. You know, if you want to have a cynical perspective, perhaps to maintain uh, or achieve power. But um, otherwise, it's also because they're they're willing to compromise. It's mm, very interesting, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I quite agree with that. That's um, the uh, Italian government has been, in general, um, a very well-run government. It's a much better-run government than people give it credit for. I, uh, um, they have some very serious problems. Um, uh, among the most serious is um, uh, is their debt, which is at about two and a half trillion euros, which is about the same size per capita as ours. Um, but Italy does not control its own currency. It's got a shrinking population and it's got some really big problems. However, if you look at um, uh, Italy's, you know, conduct of its government over the last 20 years under a whole bunch of very different kind of parties, including, you know, uh, the the you know the the television mogul uh, Silvio Berlusconi and uh, parties of the left, including the 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 mixed populist government that's come up. Um, Italy has has balanced its budget um, uh, in the last um, twenty years, so it is actually a it's a pretty well run country. Hmm. Well, that's that's really interesting and a, and a really. Uh... Uh, succinct and, and and handy way to get into the heart of the matter, and it, it really helps to kind of, you know, there, as as Alessandra was alluding, there's there's what we get from the mainstream media as non-Italians in other parts of the world, and then there's there's uh, you know setting that in the context of how the political system works, and as Chris alluded as well, in some of the the larger challenges that that get less uh, coverage. Uh, but I want to for my next question, I want to quote from Chris's essay in first things. There's there's a part of it that I, I found fascinating where you know, at the beginning of the essay, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, precisely, you know, the, uh, yes, the, the COVID pandemic seemed to, to, to deepen some of the political fractures, and we'll get into that in a, in a second, but uh, you were 
um, you know, you, you were uh, also reporting at the beginning of your recipe how, uh, you know, you saw Italians coming around a sense of uh, nationhood culture, right, that was, that had been, you know, um, um, fueled by, by, the, the, by the sense of crisis and the pandemic. And the, the, what you write in the, in the essay, uh, one point reads, uh, adjusting one's philosophy to new realities is a slow process. Italians have been adapting heroically, patriotically, and in fact, as quickly as one could hope. Their world, despite appearances, will eventually come back together. But perhaps when it does, it will be in a more durable and sensible way, one that puts Italians in less danger of being ruled by people who don't know their swear words and don't weep when they hear Nessun Dorma. And that, that's something, it, it seems like that's uh, you were it's a song that Italians were singing coming out of their, their, their balcony. So um, yeah. perhaps starting with Chris and then going to Alessandra, um, what, you know, what's, what is the, what is the growing sense of nationhood that you, that you were witness to when you were in Italy and how does that, does that, does that shape politics in major ways that we should be aware? Yeah. I, I, I don't know how specific it is to Italy. It's taking an Italian form because it's happening, um, in Italy. Uh, the COVID crisis is something that everyone rich or poor in every part of the countries that are affected by it has been affected by. And it's really, it has brought countries together. If you, yesterday in the United States was Super Bowl Sunday. And if you watched the advertisements, um, all of the companies were making appeals to the viewers in terms of we this and we that. So I think that, that, that there is this sense of a, of a national ordeal, which will strengthen um, national feeling. I think to some extent in Italy, it has reinforced the idea among Italians that Italy is poorly run. I don't know, as I say, I don't, I think that this is um, exaggerated. I think Italy is a better run country than even its, its natives believe. But it, there's something, there's a very specific element in Europe that we don't have in the United States. And that is the very, poor performance of the European Union mm. in um, both in developing vaccines uh, uh, um, uh, uh, against the virus and in rolling them out. It's basically the, it, it, the, the European Union, I get the impression that a lot of people have the feeling that, 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 that the, the crisis is going to be resolved from elsewhere. And I think that, so I think that there's a, there was a, there was a tension in Italian society to begin with at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, uh, problem that came from Italians waning faith in the European Union. And I think that's got worse. Um, but I think there's another tension that's got worse. And that is in all of these countries, I think coronavirus has tended to strengthen the already rich to strengthen the already connected, to strengthen the people who are, you know, concentrated in the boom cities of the global economy at the expense of, of small business people. And that hurts Italy, not because, not just because um, Italy has a lot of small business people, which it does, but also because they're now trying to launch a technocratic government and there might be a larger well of, let's say, distrust um, for such a government than you would expect. Then, for example, you would have seen the last time Italy had such a government, which was 10 years ago when they brought in Mario Monti to, to manage the Euro crisis. 
And Alessandra, I'm sure you have a wealth of thoughts on everything Chris has just said, but also some real life experiences growing up in Italy. Uh, what's your sense of, uh, of, of, of the sense that, the, you know, the sense of how COVID has affected the social fabric in Italy? Well, I perfectly agree that Italians believe that they have a very, a very poorly run government and they always complain about how bad their government is. And I definitely had that sentiment and experience. Um, and there is truth to that in the sense that um, it is very bureaucratic despite being very productive. You know, it has very high debt levels. It's not able to manage the diversity in its regions in the country, really. Um, you have a very, very um, industrialized and productive North. You have a Southern Italy that is very much lagging behind and has no um, industries. It used to have agriculture, that's not the case anymore. And um, <laughs> so you have a, a country that is not, I mean, perhaps it's, it's run better than, than Italians think. But there is some truth to the fact that Italians feel disaffected. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the reason for the rise in populism in the first place. You know, the Five Star Movement promised to um, put an end to the corruption that is so endemic in the country. And I would say even in the culture itself. Um, and the League promised to um, end mass immigration. But also many people forget that the League was born as a, a party that was wanted um, autonomy for the North, if not separatism brought to an extreme. Um, so it also believed in deregulation in the sense of giving more power to uh, individual regions. Um, so you have these populist forces coming up and you, you know, the system tried to uh, defeat them through these technocratic governments. But what we're seeing now I think is very interesting because uh, Mario Draghi is not, he's definitely a technocrat, but he's not the stereotypical one. I mean, he's, he's, um, has a wide range of experiences. I mean, he was president of the European Central Bank and he was responsible. Uh, I mean, he's given credit for taking Europe out, out of the uh, Eurozone crisis in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, and also in, um, for issuing uh, quantitative easing that really also helped mm. the Eurozone. And he was seen with skepticism from Germany and Northern European countries because he was Italian. And, you know, they didn't want to bail out the, the lazy Southern <laughs> Europeans. <laughs> um, but he, he was able to really compromise all these different forces. And he's been very successful in weathering a, a very big crisis, you know, the Eurozone crisis. So he's not your typical technocrat that comes out of uh, university. I mean, he, he is also an academic um, in the sense that he, and he has close relationships with the United States, which is also interesting. He earned his uh, PhD in economics at um, MIT. He was fellow at Harvard. Um, he worked for Goldman Sachs. Uh, he was, um, governor of the Bank of Italy um, and head of the treasury. So he has a really wide range of experience. He's, he's not your typical technocrat. And you have various populist forces now in Italy supporting him and wanting to form a government with him and in a way competing to do so. 
So that's also a very interesting development. And we could see with Mario Draghi uh, a compromise between populism and the EU establishment. Uh, I, I thought what Alessandra said was just fascinating. I think when you uh, compare that just before Francois uh, launches into a different topic with his next question, I think uh, that's going to be really useful for the audience, right? Is that in a lot of other European countries, uh, it, it just simply, you just simply couldn't conceive of a populist party coming around, heeding the call of someone of Mario Draghi's uh, profile to form a government. I mean, the fact that these populists in Italy aren't seeing Draghi as necessarily anathema in every kind of way um, just uh, tells you a lot about what kind of populism it is. And I think it's a different kind of populism to the one that you see in other parts of Europe. So I appreciate uh, you walking us through all of that, Alessandro. That was very helpful. Um, you know, Jorge, I think it's a very specific thing that's going on here. You know, I, you had a great uprising of, of populism of these two different kinds in 2018, as Alessandra correctly says, you had the, the basic thrust of the, of the league was anti-immigration. The basic thrust of the five, <clears throat> excuse me, the basic thrust of the five-star movement since it arose in, in 2013 um, was anti-corruption. Mm -hmm. And, but there were a lot of elements to that anti-corruption and, um, you know, they, they, they talked about doing things like making political decisions with, you know, computer algorithms. They had, um, you know, they had a lot of mass gatherings online. They, they, um, uh, they had a sort of like a futuristic idea of politics that didn't really work out, I would say, in, in power. And when they were in power in 2018 and 2019, a lot of the populist energy that was in the the five-star movement began gravitating to the league. Mm. And so the, the five-star movement was kind of a, a shell of a party. It was, it, it controlled a lot of seats in the parliament, but it didn't, wasn't really moving people on a popular level. And that's the position that they're in now. Um, uh, they have these seats in parliament who are needed to validate a, um, a, uh, a technocratic government, but they don't really have a clear path ahead. Um, and if there were elections, which is the only alternative to this uh, technocratic government, they would quite possibly get wiped out. So they really are not, I don't think that, 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 that their backing of Draghi it's a matter of it just it's just like the formation of the second Conti government mm. it doesn't really reflect an endorsement of the program. It mm. reflects a they're just buying time and hoping to, to come up with a new way to survive. I don't know if Alessandra would agree with that verdict. Uh, yes, absolutely. That's the case for the five star movement. It has lost much of its appeal because, well, people don't really know what it stands for. Uh, at the beginning, it was a loose cannon, so it could have become anything, but mm. now it's become nothing at all. So why would people vote for the Five Star Movement if they can see some of those? It's also a very divided party. Um, if they see some of those views better reflected in the center-left PD uh, party, Partito Democratico, or uh, the League, I mean, absolutely. And also those who did oppose the establishment and wanted things to change will probably probably uh, gravitate towards the league. Mm. Uh, but also, and and yes, the Five Star Movement is is supporting the Stragi government and it supported Conte too, uh, because 
it knew that it had lost much of its appeal and that if there were going to be elections, uh, it would probably lose or come in third at least. Um, but also you have Salvini supporting a Draghi mm. government and wanting to form a coalition possibly with the center-left PD party. Mm. Uh, so like I said, it's very confusing. You know, you have parties who hated each other, who were some parties that were born to oppose the other one, mm. somehow m managing to form a coalition and become allies. And uh, that's what's happening now. This was sound very strange to American viewers who already struggle with the concept of bipartisanship. It seems like Italy has invented multi-partisanship. Exactly, uh, exactly. Um, and it makes it more interesting in some ways, but um, it's, it's easy for parties to compromise their core values. Um, but with the League, I think, you know, Salvini wants to support Draghi. The only party that is not supporting Draghi, really the mainstream party, is Giorgia Meloni, mm -hmm. uh, Giorgia Meloni's party that's called Fratelli d'Italia, which means Brothers of Italy. It's a very right-wing party and um, she's also uh, gained a lot of support in, in the polls. She's pulling, I believe, at 10 or 12 percent now. Mm. Um, and she opposes this government and she said she won't support a Draghi government. Um, but Salvini is, which is surprising. Mm -hmm. The reason is that he needs credibility from Brussels and the mm -hmm. EU establishment in, in some way because he, he realized he can't just be, I think, a populist and post on social media all day. He needs some kind of credibility. Um, and also because early elections at this time are very risky. Not only is Italy in the middle of a pandemic, but also it's man it's it's going to manage this huge economic investment from the european union to save its economy so what the political class is saying now that doesn't want elections and what the president of the the republic Sergio Mattarella said is that we cannot afford an election at this time there's too much at stake and mario draghi is kind of the most authoritative uh italian figure to possibly weather this storm. Yeah, so that's of. the rationale behind it. And Salvini himself said, we agree and we're willing to put our differences aside to mm. work in the best interest of the country. So I just want to bounce back on what Christopher and Alessandro have said. You touched on the issue of, of Europe, which I thought was interesting because um, Chris talked about the kind of deepening of the anti-EU sentiment. We all remember the, the kind of uh, very strong, powerful images of uh, European flags being burnt on, on TikTok videos and whatnot. And it was kind of a general souring on, on even, you know, uh, identified pro-European politicians. The anger has somewhat calmed down since since last March. Uh, and, there's, and there's no serious talk of uh, Italy uh, with Lego or whatnot. Um, but there's, there's, there's one thing I want to walk through is how did EU, how did Italy go from being one of the founding fathers of the EU the country of Alcide de Gaspari, the country of uh, even more recently Romano Prodi. How did we end up having the, the Italy being a stalwart um, defender of the EU to the situation we have nowadays? And also, let's talk a little bit about a paradox, which I thought was interesting, is at the moment where we have a kind of a general souring of, of, uh, on EU sentiment in Italy, 
it seems that mainstream parties are becoming much more moderate, especially Lega, on the EU. How do you explain this kind of growth anti-EU sentiment and also how do you explain at the same time this paradox of um, parties becoming much more moderate on the EU? Well, that's a that's a lot. I would say, you know, why was Italy um, why was Italy so pro-European? Well, you know, Italy has um, you have to go back to the Cold War. You know, I would not call Italy an anti-American country. There are too many bonds of of, of particularly through migration, and I think that Italy is generally a a, a, a pro-American country, but. Um, Italy had a kind of a unique experience of the Cold War. And um, this goes back to the years of fascism in ways that were, were kind of like far from our subject. But, but basically Italy came out of World War II with a communist party that was about a third of its electorate. And the goal, um, uh, both of the rest of, of you know, Italian uh, political life and of, of the United States was to keep the Communist Party out of power. Mm-hmm. And that required a, a, a lot of real pressure on the Italian political system, mm-hmm. um, in, including um, a lot of corruption. Mm-hmm. And pretty much the moment the Cold War ended, the Italian political system blew up. It's a sign that it didn't have a lot of popular legitimacy behind it. I think that I think that um, Italians at that point, let's say the early to mid nineties, were probably quite eager for the idea of a European pole, the idea of sort of like reintegrating themselves into Europe rather than the American, um, rather than the American empire. Mm -hmm. As for why that has changed, I would say, first of all, I think everywhere you see um, anti-European sentiment in Europe. Immigration is the main problem. Immigration, Italy was very late to get immigration. It's pretty much a 21st century thing. But in the last five or 10 years, it has really begun to pick up speed. It has really begun to increase parabolically. Um, now, when the United States was going through its biggest, most recent wave of immigration, its economy was booming. That's not the case in Italy. Um, And because of the debt, because of the competition with China, um, you have a lot of deindustrialization in Italy. And I think that people are beginning to feel that there is something that has to, there's something, there's some close link between the European Union and specifically the Euro and their collapsing economy because Italian growth ended just about 2000. Yeah, just, I just wanna remind you, okay, that in 1990, when the Cold War ended, Italy had the fifth largest economy in the world between the United States, behind the United States, the Soviet Union, Germany, and Japan. Its co- economy has stagnated and even shrunk since 2000, which is the same year that Italy and everyone else entered the euro. So I think that's a big part of the problem. Um, absolutely, immigration has been a driving force in um, having these uh, populist party rise to power and also behind euro skepticism because the EU was very much in favor of immigration. Um, and uh, Italians are new to 
immigration as well. It's it's not a country you know made up of immigrants or that has any experience with immigration. Also, doesn't have the same colonial history that say France and the United Kingdom have. Um, so it really didn't have large waves of immigrants coming from former colonies. Um, and so it has had a, a difficult time uh, integrating many of these immigrants. Um, and especially I would say those coming from the uh, civil war in Libya, which were not Libyans, uh, but from sub-Saharan Africa who used Libya as a uh, route to enter Europe. And Italy was basically the ports, became the ports of Europe. And even the Five Star Movement said this. Now the dynamics have somewhat changed because immigration is no longer the top priority just because of coronavirus kind of stopping the flow, general flow of people around the world. Although it is still happening to some degree, but not as much as before. Um, what is interesting is that now that we're having consultations going on between the various parties and a possible uh, Draghi government is that the PD um, Partito Democratico, which is center-left, very pro-immigration uh, and very pro-EU, fears um, that Draghi is actually more, agrees more with Salvini on the issue of immigration, which is a very interesting development. Mm. Um, and we don't really know what Draghi thinks. He's not a public figure. He doesn't have a public profile. He doesn't really like to speak to the press. So, um, but we know that he agreed with many of Salvini's policies, even in terms of economics. I mean, people forget that the league is very much a strange party in terms of allocating it on their left or their rights, even on um, economic issues, because it was born as a party that opposed the centralization of power in Rome, mm -hmm. um, especially in terms of economics, because you had these very productive industrialized regions in the North um, having to sacrifice, you know, what they earned to help uh, southern Italy, which was really lagging behind. It has much higher unemployment. It doesn't really have any industries, and that money was really being wasted by the central government in Rome. So, like I briefly mentioned earlier, the league is for more power to individual regions and to some extent privatization as well from the central government, which doesn't mean privatizing healthcare at all. Like those are non-negotiable non in, in Italy, like uh, healthcare and education. But there are some themes that they would agree with. So we're seeing a very interesting almost synthesis of these various different forces and it, it could, be very successful in a way. Yeah, I tend to think that I tend to think that Draghi is really in the driver's seat here, and that that it would be um, should he decide to support the government, Salvini conforming to Draghi's views, and uh, rather than the other way around. I think that I think that Alessandra has this 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 right. I, I you know the 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 league is a is a party that was founded in the late 1980s. It can be understood as being part of this sort of the Reaganite or Thatcherite wave of conservatism. It's not an accident that it was founded in, in Milan. And so even with Salvini's real focus on turning it into a nationwide party using immigration, 
there's still there's there are still a lot of businessmen in um, in the north backing this party, and you know, including the um, the government of Veneto, the the Venice region, which is has been very successful in fighting uh, the coronavirus, has really a lot of prestige in Italy now, and has kept its distance from um, Salvini. And um, some of Salvini's um, advisors and strategists who are actually turning out to be closer to Draghi than they are to, to, to the anti-immigrant part of the league. So you have a, you have a, a conservative party that's under a, a sort of like some similar pressures to the American Republicans or the, or the British Tories. But how, how do you explain this, this, this apparent paradox between the fact you've got growing anti-EU sentiment and seemingly um, uh, even very populist parties becoming much more moderate on the EU? Maybe Alessandra first? Well, there's been a compromise on both sides, I think. Uh, the e EU and EU institutions in general, I think to some extent have realized that they're um, policies are not sustainable in the long term if they want to survive. And this is true both in terms of economics um, with the Eurozone crisis. Uh, they realize that, um, you know, this, this uh, wealth gap or the, this monetary union without any kind of fiscal union is not going to work in the long term. You have these huge losses for Southern European countries especially Italy, it was, uh, its economy was doing better before joining the Euro. Um, and then you have these huge gains for countries like Germany. So they realized that they need to deepen the union, which means not make, making many Northern European countries happy because they have to you know, give up a larger portion of um, their tax money mm. to support this, this unionization. Um, but also they, I think they also realized that in terms of immigration, that if they continue on this, on this route, it's, it's not going to serve their interests well. Um, and likewise, on the other hand, you have populist parties like in Italy as the Five Star Movement or the League that have realized that their position on the Euro is a very risky one. They're not willing to take that responsibility of a possible exit from the Eurozone. Uh, remember, we had Brexit, but that wasn't an exit from the Eurozone. They were never part of the co common currency, which makes things much more complicated and, and difficult. I, I think that the Euro is an important part of it. I, I, I do think that I, I am not as sure as you are that that these parties are softening towards um, mm. you. I mean, if we look at the political crisis of 2019, that led to the formation of the second Conti government. I mean, it didn't happen because the right-wing populists were getting less popular. It, it, it happened because the first Conti, you, you could call it the Conti government, but it was actually the De Maio Salvini government. It was actually a, a sort of like a, a, a sort of twin government between the, the Five Star and, and, and the League. Th that government was probably as popular as any that Italy has had since the Second World War. It fell not because it was doing badly, but because it was doing so well. And, and Salvini was doing so well as the perceived head of it that the polls were showing that he could, were elections called, take an absolute majority in both chambers for, 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 for the league. 
which would be an extraordinary amount of power for mm. any politician in Italy. And what happened is that Salvini underestimated the political astuteness of, of his partisan adversaries who were able to put together this impossible looking coalition, which was the Democratic Party and the Five Star, which was a, which was a party that was explicitly founded to undermine the Democratic Party. Um, so Salvini was, he was not repudiated in the public. He was maneuvered out of his position of advantage. And there's really no reason to believe that the public has changed its mind. Um, so that's, that is Georgia Maloney's estimation, that the, that the payoff in the end will come to um, the person who has really kept the faith, uh, uh, you know, against immigration and against Europe. And Salvini's bet is there's really no way to uh, uh, get elections, at least before the next presidential election, which is in another year or so. Um, and so you might as well wait, keep your position of power, maybe get a, a seat or two in the government and, and continue that way. At least that's what it looks like Salvini is doing. I did want to ask one final question that I hope is going to uh, look at immigration and how what, what it tells us about kind of um, Italy at large. And, and But, uh, you know, it, I think what both of you said was so interesting. And I, I wonder, you know, we, we kind of began uh, with Francois' question trying to explain uh, the anti-EU sentiment that we've seen in, in Italy recently through the, the prism of immigration. And I wonder if we couldn't kind of flip the issue on its head and, and, and try to understand what explains anti-immigration sentiment. And there's not like a deeper malaise that underlies that, that, um, that the, 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 you know, the Italians have turned against immigration. Although, as, as Chris said, it is a more recent phenomenon uh, than in other European countries like, where, like France, for instance. And like Alessandra said, there is no post-colonial guilt. Um, in Italy. But I wonder, uh, and, and this really gets at the arguments in, in Chris's book of, from 2009, but also uh, to some of what you reported about uh, when you visited Castel uh, Volturno, right, in your, in your first thing's essay is, you know, w w it seems like there's a deeper argument, or at least one that Salvini makes oftentimes about, you know, cultural self-confidence or cultural sovereignty, the ability of Italians to keep and maintain their cultural um, identity right in the face of globalism and, and even, uh, uh, you know, other immigration, obviously, but just a range of, of uh, threats on, on Italian identity. You could throw in that, uh, you know, everything he, he does to kind of keep Italian uh, products um, uh, in the market and, 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 you know, have them compete on fair, on fair terms with, with uh, other countries, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, spurring more agriculture in the south and, and 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 protecting industry in the north. So, would it, it, it? There seems like you know there, there's a there's a deeper civilizational almost malaise in, in Italian society. Chris has written extensively about it, and I wonder what what are your thoughts on this? And if there's if that could become the ground on which Fratelli and Lega unite, uh, because as, as uh, Alessandra said, uh, Fratelli is of all the parties certainly on the right the most scraggy skeptic. Um, skeptical, but there has been some uh, speculation as to whether Meloni and, and Salvini can leave their differences behind and form a government. What's, what's your sense of this, like the larger Italian malaise on the right? 
I, I really don't think that that's a, um, a problem for those two parties. I think that um, when it appeared that Salvini had a chance of, of forming his own government, I think it was assumed that um, any shortfall would be met by, you know, Maloney, that they would be, that they would be very comfortable being working in coalition together. Um, uh, I, I do recognize that they, they are different. Um, but you're right. I mean, this sort of civilizational idea of Italy is um, precisely uh, the, the thing on which they're closest. Mm -hmm. I would say just to uh, answer Christopher's uh, points on uh, the right-wing coalition, or rather the league specifically not losing popular support, that is absolutely correct. Um, I was more making the argument that these parties are not Eurosceptic like they used to be. They have abandoned their Eurosceptic positions, at mm -hmm. least in terms of abandoning the Euro as a currency. So it's, in this sense, a more economic issue. And on the other hand, you have the EU um, acknowledging many of the concerns mm. that the pop, the wave of populism uh, kind of brought to, to the forefront. So immigration is one of them, but also the fact that the current situation in the Eurozone in terms of the inequalities that exist between member states economically is not sustainable in the long term. Um, as for the civilizational issue, um, I read, uh, Christopher, your latest piece on, especially the part I found very interesting on the falling uh, birth rates. Italy has the lowest birth rates in Western mm -hmm. Europe. And um, that's not really because of some cultural forces like feminism or, you know, some right wingers, especially on the extreme right, make this uh, argument, which is absurd it's because Italy is not very it's more con socially conservative in that sense mm. um, it has much to do with its uh, economic condition that doesn't allow um, you know individuals couples families to have children and I see this in my generation you know I mean this is anecdotal experience but obviously it's part of a wider trend as well if you look at the statistics you know, most of my friends are not thinking about having a family, but it's not because they don't want to. It's because they don't have the means. Mm. You know, the average salary is um, 1,500 euros a month, and that's a good salary. Um, and that's just not, if you think about how, for example, the boomer generation grew up, I mean, by the time they were 30, 35, they could afford to buy a home, afford to, you know, buy a car, um, had a very good paying job that they could invest in their children's future. That is no longer the case. People can barely pay for rent. Many young Italians still live with their parents when they're 30, 35, um, and uh, they can't afford to pay their own rents, let alone have a family. It's a cost to have children nowadays in a post-industrial society. Mm. It's no longer a benefit like it used to be. Mm. Or, you know, like you, people make the case, oh, but poor countries have so many children, look at Africa. Well, that's because it's not a post-industrial society. Mm. And having children there is actually a net benefit. Um, so I think, you know, part of the malice is 
is the fact beyond the civilizational issue. Um, if we look at if we look at birth rate specifically, it has to do with economics mm -hmm. um, mostly, and it's a theme that I don't think is discussed enough. Um, uh, as for what was your other question? Sorry, on immigration and the the clash you said. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you see uh, from, from your experience, uh, Alessandra, and reporting on the Italian right as well, whether, uh, you know, you do you do bring it down to sort of the nuts and bolts of economics and, and why Italians have lost confidence and, and the ability of their society to kind of, you know, give folks a, uh, you know, a brighter future and whatnot. But um, what, what's what's the civilizational aspect of this? Is it is it is there like a sort of a, a nostalgia for, you know, a, you know, in Italy of, of, you know, where, where, you know, where you wouldn't hear anything other than Italian on the streets or where you had a, a sort of a sense of cultural pride. Um, is that part of the Lega and, and Fratelli message as well? Yes, absolutely. They stress the cultural identity of not just Italy, but Europe um, and the West in general. They use Christianity as a means to affirm that sense of identity. Um, which has a lot of backlash from the church. So there's a mm -hmm. conflict there, but yes, these uh, right-wing parties definitely use, uh, you know, the affirmation of the, the existing culture and the defense of that culture as a way to counter these, um, this push for new immigrants to come in and to, you know, this idea that we, we need immigrants because otherwise who's going to pay for people's pensions and these kinds of arguments I think make more sense people often ask me why is it that in the United States it's a country of immigrants and it works very well um or relatively speaking it does and in Europe there's this pushback well Europe is much older so people have a, a stronger sense of their roots and their identity. But also Europe has a different economic system where it's not really free market oriented like the United States. So if an immigrant comes in in America, it's very easy for him to or her to assimilate into the, the country because you know it's easy for him to find a job uh, or her to find a job. That's my bias there, apologies. <laughs> um, and um, in, in Europe, that's not really the case. Well, I use uh, masculine because most of the immigrants coming in Europe are men, uh, but it, it's very hard for immigrants to assimilate. And I visited some migrant camps myself and they were telling me, we can't find a job, we would want to work, we just don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. It's a much more ossified system, you know, like bureaucracies, and it's really hard to get into. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, there aren't any jobs available either. There's very high unemployment and there are not many jobs available for Europeans or Italians themselves, let alone foreigners who don't know how the system works, probably don't know the language. Um, and it's not as easy for them to assimilate because it's a welfare state economy. It's not, it's not a free market economy. Mm. Chris, uh, any finishing thoughts? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that I would be careful about about seeing a drift back to a pro-European point of view in Italy right now. I think that that what is gone is the is the philosophical defense of of Europe. 
the the pro-Europeanism you see now is not a defense of the idea of Europe. It's a defense of the idea of taking the 200 billion euros that have been budgeted as part of the post-COVID recovery fund um, uh, by Europe and spending them wisely on infrastructure and trusting Draghi to do that more than the horse traders who appear to be in charge in Italy now. I think in the absence of the recovery fund and the money that it it provides um, for infrastructure potentially, um, I don't think there would be much enthusiasm for Europe outside of the political class. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is a really great way to 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 to, to leave it at that, and uh, we're, we're so grateful to both Alessandra and Chris for for availing themselves so early in the morning. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion. To hopefully, seeing you at, an, at another episode of Uncommon Decency, and uh, and uh, keep keep uh, keep to stay tuned with all of Chris's uh, work and Alessandra's work. Uh, Chris again is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books. And Alessandra is uh, a Joe Randall Memorial Fellow of the Wall Street Journal's Opinion Page. Thank you both so much. Thank Take you care. so much for having us. Thank you. So, Jorge, um, Chris and Alessandra are out. Uh, what did you make of this whole conversation about Italy, given the current context uh, right now? Yeah, I, this is perhaps one of the um, more worthwhile episodes I think that we've done. Uh, we didn't. We we had planned this one episode uh, way before uh, the whole, you know, uh, uh, the whole sort of uh, the, 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 the 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 domino uh, pieces started, uh, you know, falling one after the other, uh, leading up to uh, Giuseppe Conte's resignation. So this was an idea brewing in the back of our minds for a while. And it's just been made very timely, and we're we're releasing this episode just a couple of days, I believe, after uh, former president of the European Central Bank Mario Draghi has succeeded in forming a new government that is going to, uh, um, you know, uh, that is going to uh, replace uh, the one that uh, fell apart after Matteo Renzi pulled out of the coalition. Uh, Buttressing the Conte to uh, the Conte to government as we as we uh, as we go over in, at length in the episode. So I think it's a very timely episode. Um, you know, I think it's it was a good opportunity to delve deeper into um, kind of the, the the big picture, right? Of where uh, like w- what are some of the things that we can interpret uh, about Italy based on some of the political shocks that we've seen happen in just the past five to ten years. Uh, not just in terms of the populism of both right and left, uh, the Salvini phenomenon and also uh, the Cinque Stelle phenomenon, and more recently on the right, the Giorgia Meloni, uh, Meloni phenomenon, but more generally, just where um, you know where we're at in terms of Italy as a as a you know as a Western European country that is you know undergoing um, a number of political shifts that uh, that are really new. I think across uh, all of Western Europe. So, so I'm I'm really glad we did this episode, and it's it's going to be released at a very timely moment. And uh, and 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 I think a lot a lot remains to be seen. I think people have diverging expectations of um, of Mario Draghi and what he's going to be able to accomplish as Italian PM. I think uh, you know he's notably being met in Brussels with with a with a hero's welcome. I mean, let's just re- re- let's just remind folks that. Uh, the bureaucracy sees in Mario Draghi a true savior, 
there, there would likely be no European Union to speak of anymore had Mario Draghi not uh, saved it uh, back in 2012 with his famous, you know, whatever it takes speech. Although, you know, he was obviously a central bank governor, a different kind of set of attributions than uh, than um, than the Commission and the Council, but but uh, the eurozone, in a way, underpins a lot of the uh, the uh, prosperity that is made um, that is that is um, that is you know that is defined Europe's kind of post post war uh, experiment. So um, so I think he's being met with uh, hero's welcome. People expect that he's going to be you know first of all steer. Uh, the Italian boat to um, uh, to quiet waters, and that he's also going to be uh, be able to deliver uh, some interesting things at the um, at the EU level. Uh, what did you What did you think of this sort of broad conversation with Alessandro and Chris? Well, I thought it was interesting that she, they both made the contrast between what is happening on Italy right now and it's happening on in the US, saying yes, there is a crisis, but at the same time. Um, the Italians aren't at each other's throats in the same way that Americans are. Mm. Um, and mm. the very fact you're capable of having, how many parties? You have Cinque Stelle, the Democratic Party, Centre-Left, uh, the far-right of Salvini, uh, Forza Italia, Berlusconi, Centre-Right. All of them seemingly coalescing around the same government is just unimaginable in, in the United States. Mm. Um, so it says we have a kind of very different relationship to politics in Italy than, than, uh, than America and other countries. Um, that said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, so I understand the kind of a, a, a attractiveness of a national unity government in a crisis moment. I think what unifies a lot of these, of these different parties together is they know that with Conte at the helm of a government, um, it's a good moment to have this kind of pro-European figure when, when uh, Brussels is going to be uh, sending money to, to Italy mm. uh, through loans and, and grants. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure a government which has kind of, seeing any such a wide support is actually this strong because um, you're going to have very different expect- expectations coming from very different actors. And uh, the next the next general election is in uh, June 2023. And I'm not sure um, Draghi, who right now is, you know, Draghi is kind of the ideal man of what is projecting what they want to project on him, but I'm not sure he's going to be able to kind of handle this over, for, the, for the next two years or so, because, you know, especially given how fractious and, and chaotic Italian politics can be at times. So mm. wait and see. I, 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 I'm also just checking right now that uh, you know the, uh, a lot of people seem to be very happy about this, the about Draghi being, especially markets seem to be very happy about Draghi taking office. Mm. And so mm. uh, you know the uh, bonds have been dropping, and people people seem to have a lot of confidence in this government. But that's that's Francois. That is the Draghi magic. That's just yes. that's just what come. That's just what comes. With being Mario Draghi, Super Mario, exactly. But you know, part of part of me is I understand the attractiveness again of having kind of um, beyond beyond politics, the figure that kind of be, goes beyond partisan politics. But at the same time, I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm not Italian, so uh, maybe not be the best person to talk about it. But uh, it seems to me very strange that you would let technocrats take power. I think you know. Um, I don't think that is a good precedent. I think it is a chaotic situation which made the man an exceptional situation. Um, but it says something about the um, the state in which Italy is, in that it no longer trusts any of its politicians and it ends up um, uh, choosing a, a technocrat. Again, I'm, I'm not sure this is a viable solution. Mm. Uh, and you know, yeah, 
Uh, he I, knows if he can stand until the next election. I, I would totally concur with that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, there's there's almost like a um, uh, a phénomène du grand homme. The, 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 there's kind of like a a, um, a um, with you know with a with a hero's record comes hero's expectations, right? It, it's like people are expecting too much of, of, of Mario Dra- Draghi at a moment when you know he's being um, he's being you know. Um, served this this you know very again like you said this very fractious political uh, context and and what he's going to be handling as PM has really virtually nothing to do with the the attributions of an of an ECB governor right it's it's a totally different um, job uh, even though kind of Draghi's um, uh, you know his character he's an incredibly equanimous person in yeah. fact. Alessandro was was tweeting about this a couple of days ago and kind of his whole life story kind of being, I think he was an orphan at age 16, yeah. uh, went over across the pond, got his PhD in econ from MIT. He's had really quite a quite a unique career and and really brings this sort of hero's aura around his name to, 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 his, to his new job. But I would I would absolutely concur with what you said. I think it was very lucid of you to, to just to warn that. Um, you know, uh, technocrats can only deliver so much, particularly at the national level. And what I what I would add to that, because you, you did allude to a couple of really interesting points about generally Italian politics. I, I got a newswire uh, last week, and I think this is still very much at the uh, rumor stage. Um, there's nothing kind of um, palpable that, that, that we can speak of uh, as of yet. But Lega apparently has been mulling... Um, uh, leaving the um, ID group in Brussels, mm. where he's where they currently sit with Marine Le Pen, and eventually, I think one of the speculations again, this is pure speculation, is that they will eventually join a subgroup within the EPP, um, mm. and, and you know, which which is which is a, 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 an upsetting move. I mean, I, I, what I really liked about this episode at one point is that Alessandra really gets into the the history of Lega being the sort of very Northern bourgeois party. I think Chris called it at some point a product of the Thatcherite Reaganite 1980s right, yeah. and I think that that aspect of their nature has been widely misunderstood because obviously being within the Marine Le Pen grouping in Brussels, they're they're instantly being made a boogeyman of the, of the bureaucracy. So you know, just just by by dint of being on the same grouping as Marine Le Pen, so the fact that they are now thinking of going somewhere else, I think is is very ominous, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens on, on on that front. Yeah, it looks like a party that is desperate to get to power and is uh, ready to make a few compromises along the way. And um, yeah, it's an interesting evolution. But anyways, I'm I'm glad all of you could join us for this episode. Um, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's great to get all these reviews. Not only does it boost our, our our numbers on Apple Podcasts and all these other platforms, it also puts a smile on our face. And you know helps us get another great guest for you guys. Anyways, see you next week. See you next week.